Reading the Bible, one of the most daunting and fulfilling enterprises in which we can participate, and having a good teacher matters immensely. Today, we're learning from just such a teacher. Thanks for joining us on the Church Next Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Church Next Podcast. My name is Chris Yaw, and I'm your host as we learn from gifted presenters on a variety of topics that are designed to help us grow in our spiritual lives. You're listening to episode number 13. It's called Approaching Scripture with Vicki Garvey. Vicki is a highly regarded Bible teacher and for years served as the canon for lifelong education at the Episcopal Diocese of Chicago. Our podcasts are curated from our online learning library over at churchnext.tv. You can find out more by going there. And if you want to support us, consider a $9 a month subscription that will give you access to all of our individual online classes, more than 300 of them. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that shape disciples. Scripture is complicated. Written by humans, it's also inspired by God. Deeply relevant to today's Christians, it's written in two different ancient languages, mainly, neither of which most of its audience today understands. And its many books assume cultural norms of varying societies, the most recent of which is well over a thousand years old. Different writers wrote its books in different genres to different audiences for different reasons. Yet God speaks to us continually through its pages. And we don't always understand exactly when or how that revelation will come. Reading and listening to scripture is, in short, a privilege and a challenge and a lifetime commitment. The Bible offers unceasing opportunities for enlightenment. It connects us with those who came before us. It challenges and confuses and even angers us, even as it compels us to return to it and give our faith its foundation. In this episode, Vicki Garvey offers suggestions for ways to think about and approach scripture. She considers questions that we should ask and offers ideas about how we might approach questions of genre and context as we revisit the Bible's ancient books. Most importantly, she offers guidance about the attitude we should have as we revisit scripture, how we might effectively tackle its challenges and receive its great gifts. A collection of sacred texts created by different writers over more than a thousand years of human history. The Bible challenges us contemporary Christians. How should we use it? What do we expect to get out of reading it? In this first talk, Vicki Garvey offers important reasons to read and value the Bible as a treasure trove of ancient literature, as a living connection to our ancestors in faith, as a medium through which God continually speaks to us. I think the first reason is because it's like Mount Everest, it's there. Um, And all that aside, the joke part aside, it's, if nothing else, if if we weren't believers, if we weren't one of the peoples of the book, this is um, a valuable treasure treasure of human history and of human literature. Um, It inevitably gets called the most issued or the most published book in the history of literature. So there is that. A couple of years ago, I was at a bookstore, and I saw on a remainders table a book that said something like, what the educated person should know about the Bible. 
So the second thing is, we ought to know about it. We're human beings. It's a human book. We ought to know about it. But we, um, in different faith traditions, call ourselves peoples of the book. We're one of those. And Christians, whether they're aware of it or not, Christians who go to church, whatever that church may be, are in fact steeped in it at least once a week. We know it when somebody says, well, this is a reading from so-and-so. But our hymns, many of them are based on biblical texts. The prayers often are echoing things from the book of Psalms, um, our introductions to various things. Anyway, we're, we're steeped in this stuff. So it behooves us to know a little bit more about what it is that we proclaim on a Sunday or assume that people assume that we adhere to because we're there on a Sunday. We go to the Bible. I read the Bible not as an answer book. I don't do the drop the needle in the text when I have a problem. That's dangerous, right? Um, But I go there because there are people there who are my ancestors in the faith. They understood that they had a relationship with this God. They described some of that in the pages of the book or the books. Um, So they're my ancestors. I ought to know something about my own family tree. Beyond that, there is the God who lives in the pages with me. I I live there. Um, Even though the texts are ancient and come from different civilizations with people who speak different languages and sometimes have different values than I do, in fact, I find myself on those pages. I'm, I'm guessing that some people will know who Sister Wendy Beckett is. Bill Moyers, several years ago, did uh, an interview with her, and ostensibly they were going to talk about art and the odd juxtaposition of this clo- semi-cloistered nun who really understands art. So they begin talking about this, and inevitably they're talking about faith and sin and grace and all the rest of that. And at one point, he asks her, how do you know that a piece of art before which you stand is classical? It's authentic. It's true. It's good. And she says, because there is truth in it, and its truth calls out to the truth in you. And he says, I don't understand this. And she says, well, when you go to the, to the art museum, you stand in front of a sculpture or a painting or something, And you wait, you give it time, and inevitably it'll speak to you. And he says, what if I stay there and it doesn't speak to me? And she says, then you have to go away for a little while and let it marinate with you. And then you return, and if it's true, it will speak the truth. He says, what if I do this 15 times and nothing happens? And she says, then, dear Bill, this piece of art is not for you just now. That's the way I think we approach the Bible. It is, it is constantly speaking to me in some way. And there are days when I go to a particular story because I may need to teach it or preach on it or I'm interested in it, and nothing happens. But what I have learned is if I continue to return, it will inevitably find me where I am. Um, and, and the God who stands behind that text who lives there in a certain way, also begins to speak to me. So that's why I think um, we read it, or why we ought to read it. 
The people who created the books of the Bible assumed a certain level of understanding about information that their audiences would know, day-to-day cultural norms, historical events, geographical details, etc. Most of us modern readers and worshipers lack this understanding. In this next talk, we learn what kinds of details might be relevant, how they can change our understanding of Scripture, and how we can find out about the contexts of scriptural passages and ideas. Context does matter. One of our problems is that, and I've said this before, we don't speak in the streets, most of those, if we live in this country, we don't speak those languages in the street. The 21st century is very different from the 5th century before the Common Era or the, or the 1st century when Jesus was wandering around. Um, so we're removed in a lot of ways. And there are occasions when I'm quite sure that when we read a phrase, it will often one of the, the obvious ones is in, in Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard it said. No, I haven't. What do you mean you have heard it said? I haven't heard that. I don't know that context. So sometimes we have to peel back the layers to find it. Sometimes the text helps us. So, for instance, um, Genesis 22 begins, After these things, Abraham, God t- tested Abraham. Well, okay, after these things has given us a clue. It's saying, what are those things? How do we find those things? Or, John 2, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. What happened on the second day and the first day? So it's often helping us to contextualize by inviting us to look in other places. Sometimes it does it, um, ironically, by linking two very different contexts, or three or four. So when we hear or read a phrase or a sentence or a story, and there are bells in my head, I need to track down that other story. So, for instance, we hear in the beginning, okay, there are two places in the Bible which begin with that phrase. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, depending on your translation, and in the beginning was the word, and the word was toward God, and everything God was the word. Well, that's not an accident. The, The author of that fourth gospel wants us to understand what he's about to tell us as a new creation. So it's doing that kind of thing. Or... On occasion, we'll get a story. And you know how, um, if I were to say, once upon a time, everybody in our context would understand that I'm about to start a fairy tale. There are little cues like that in the biblical text as well. So, for instance, um, if an angel or a messenger of God or God appears to a woman who has no child or on one occasion a man whose wife has no child and says, don't be afraid, we're cued in that there's going to be a baby at the end of the story somewhere because there's a whole pattern of stories that do that kind of thing. So it does help us on occasion to know where we are. Um, And sometimes we have to push it a little bit. So if it says, for instance... Isaiah says in uh, chapter 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Tell them it's all over. The warfare has ended. They've paid double for their sins. 
we ought to be asking the question, why do they need comfort? What is this about? Uh, what warfare? If it tells us that this thing was written in a particular period, it helps to know something about that period. Um, and this is where having such helps as a Bible which is annotated, uh, although at first it can be off-putting to people who don't know about this because it looks like endless footnotes. But if you don't know, for instance, um, about the, when I, that particular part of Isaiah was written, that will help you to understand that there is a period in which these people were terribly dispirited. And, and to hear those words was immensely, as a matter of fact, comforting. Or you know, why is it that Jonah is so upset when God calls him that he's going to have no parts of this ministry to which God has called him? Who are the Ninevites and why is he so upset about them? It helps to know that. Otherwise, you think he's just a cranky um, a prophet or an anti-prophet, which he is. Um, so th- there are ways that the text itself sometimes helps us to, to understand where it is and what it's trying to say. It also helps to have, on occasion, in an annotated, and annotated Bibles will have this, maps, because sometimes it's helpful to know where people are. For instance, Jesus in Matthew and Mark has a confrontation, at first it's a confrontation, um, and a lively conversation with a woman. In Matthew, she's called a Canaanite. In Mark, she's called a Syrophoenician. It's important to know that both of them are on a border. They're not in their comfort zone, and we act differently when we're not at home. That kind of stuff helps us to understand, even though we're so far removed, to understand where these people are when these stories take place. Um, Well, there are lots of other things that you can say about this, but that, I think, is a good beginning. Say that a prominent politician were to get married. Different publications would write about the event in varying ways. People magazine would write about it one way, Washington Post another, an opponent's political ad another. The readers would know what to take from these different approaches because we generally understand these genres and how to receive the information they offer. In this next talk, Vicki discusses the Bible and how we should approach its different books with similarly varied expectations, depending on what genres they represent. Armed with an understanding of the biblical genres, we can better understand why the people who created the different books of the Bible composed these books the way they did and what they would have expected their readers or listeners to take from their work. Sometimes people read the text of the Bible as if it's all one monolith. It is big, after all. But we get practical about it. Um, How did you learn to read a newspaper? Most of us didn't learn that in school. We picked it up. But we know very well that we read what's above the fold, if we've got a physical paper, on the first page. We read differently from that which we read when we open the pages and we go to those last two pages before the end of that first section because then we're in letters letters to the editor and the op-ed page. That's very different kind of news reporting than the first page. We know that we read sports differently than comics differently than advice columns. We did learn in school 
that there's a difference between, or there should be, <laughs> a difference between nonfiction and fiction, between prose and poetry. We go at these things. We listen to them differently. We, when we read them aloud, we read them differently. And we, when we interpret them, we interpret them differently. The same thing applies with the Bible. It's full of different genre. So we start with story, I mean, on page one, um, it's a story, but it's also a poetic story. Page two is more like story story with characters who do things and say things to one another. There's obviously poetry in it. There is song. There are what we call law codes, although their understanding of law was very different from ours. There are letters to individuals. There's one in uh, the book of Daniel. There's also one in the New Testament to a character named Philemon. But there are also letters that are written to full communities. So when we read those letters, one of the things that I think would help us is to understand we're reading somebody else's mail. And sometimes, it's, it's not unlike when, when I'm on the train coming here and I overhear way too often other people on telephones and I hear half the conversation, and of course I have an overactive imagination, so I'm filling in the... We do the same thing with the epistles. I don't know exactly sometimes what Paul or the other writers of the epistles are going at, because I don't know, unless I read between the lines, what the besetting problem is, and it always seems to be a problem, or most of the time. So, and then there's gospel, and gospel is its own thing. You could say that it's like a biography, except we immediately, or most of us immediately, go into our own understandings of biography. So we expect things like what color hair he had, and what color eyes, and how tall, and what the mean temperature of the Sea of Galilee was, and all that. But this is proclamation. It's, yes, the, the central character is an individual in the Gospels. But the Gospels, Gospel writers are so convinced that this is the one for whom Israel has been waiting, that they each in their individual ways and to their individual audiences tell this story in slightly different ways. Um, that's proclamation. And, and, and when we read it of a Sunday in church, it will help if the readers understand that they're not reading, simply reading aloud, that what they're doing is proclaiming news in each of the segments of lections that we have. Um, so... It helps to know that I'm reading, for instance, a parable, and the parables aren't true stories. Jesus is simply telling a story to make a point about something else, often something else that uh, is not readily accessible to the people to whom he's speaking. As we know, it's, it's not unlike extended similes or metaphors that we know from other literature. So they're not true, but they are true in other ways. Which brings me to myth. Much of the Bible um, is made of myth. And way too often we think, myth in the Bible? Myths are lies. No, myths aren't lies. Myths are, are stories about things that didn't ever happen, but they're always happening. It's, it's not simply the facts, ma'am. It's the truth, but at a deep level. That it's the kind of truth that, as I said before, can reverberate from the first century, the fifth century, the eighth century before the Common Era, and we still hear it. Um, one of the things about about the genre, uh, and this this goes across genre, 
is that in many places, in the poetry, in songs, in some of the legislation, and certainly in the stories, there are a lot of questions. And when we hear a question, there's always a second person assumed. So it, um, in a gospel that we, the day before this is being taped, we all heard, um, Jesus says at the end of it, this is Luke 24, you are witnesses. Well, he's talking to the disciples, and we don't know which disciples, but some disciples after the resurrection. But that you hangs in the air. So it's also, it's always inviting us in, inviting us to answer the question and to ask our own questions. So even though now I'm talking across genre, there is some commonality in the way that the, the Bible is always inviting us in, no matter whether it's telling us a story or singing us a song or um, reciting poetry, even erotic poetry, it's inviting us in. Be part of this. You're part of the family. You, you are invited to a conversation that started thousands of years before you were born and that will end thousands, maybe thousands of years after you've died. So join in. Don't be afraid of it. Taking into account all of the complexities, questions of context, author, audience, purpose, language, and genre, how overall should we approach the act of reading scripture? What attitude and actions should we take to get to maximize our experience with reading the Bible, to understand it better, to hear God's word in it, to let its words shape our lives? In this last talk, Vicki offers guidance on how to read the Bible in a productive way with an active brain and an open heart. Don't be afraid of it. Do wrestle with it. Ask it questions, not just questions such as when did King Uzziah die or um, why are these people needing to be comforted, but um, for instance, the story of the of the people on the road to Emmaus when uh, Jesus joins them and they don't recognize him and so on. And we, reading that, are more inside the story than they are who are in the story because they don't recognize him and we do. But at the point at which they do recognize him, when he's done all of this work with rereading the text that has gone before him in the light of his own resurrection, and then when he does that familiar stuff with bread that he does, taking, blessing, breaking and passing it out. Then they know him, and then the veil drops, and we're not privy to their conversation after that. Uh, so we want to ask the. I want to ask the question. Well, what happened next? Uh, and and to use my imagination, often in the company of other people who care about this as I do. One of the things that I noticed, and it's the first time I noticed it, and I noticed it in preparation um, for yesterday's gospel. It's this tiny little thing. Moses, at Moses, Jesus appears to disciples post-resurrection, and in the middle of this very tumultuous moment, it's filled with tension. They are terrified, they're startled, they're disbelieving, they're joyful, and they're wondering. Lots of uh, adjectives tumbling over one another in Greek, and that doesn't happen a lot. And then he says hey, have you got anything to eat? And they give him a piece of broiled or braised or roasted or grilled fish. The thing that I then thought about was they give him leftovers. 
because it doesn't say that they then cooked this stuff. It's that they had finished dinner, put the stuff in the fridge, and then he appears. Now, what does that mean? Well, with whom in my life do I share leftovers? I don't share it with people with whom I have to stand on ceremony, people I have to impress or feel I have to impress. I share leftovers with the people that I love. And, and the other thing that happens at that moment is all those emotions that had so filled the room go away. He's, he's there. He's at home. And another interesting thing is that grilled fish is more um, appropriate for Galilee. And they're in Jerusalem. But Galilee's where they all came from. So this is like mom's roast pork on a Sunday or something, right? That's, that's a very tender moment which reaches out from the first century to me in the 21st because I asked the question, what does that mean? Now, is that what it has to mean? Of course not. But it's one of the possible meanings of the text, which immediately speaks to me. Um, so being able to wrestle with it, I mean, we're even, there's a way in which the Bible itself tells us to do this. The obvious story is Genesis 32, Jacob wrestling with God. Eventually, it's clear that it's God. Uh, And not letting God go without some sort of answer, without a blessing. It's what we do with the text. We're constantly, but what does it mean for us? And again, the Bible is helping us with that because it's constantly, somebody says that it's one of the most unsettling bits, bits of literature there is because it's constantly tussling with itself. So one prophet, will, an Isaiah, will say, all but obviously, the temple is the place where God wills to reside in the midst of the people, and it will never be destroyed. Along comes Jeremiah, not that much longer later, and essentially stands on the altar and says, this place is going to be destroyed. And Jesus, several centuries later, agrees with him. Um, so it's, it's always asking itself some questions. We ask different questions because we've changed. The context has changed. So how does the living word make that transition? It's a process. Um, So I think we should always read it with one another. If at all possible, read it aloud. Several years ago, I was going to be preaching for the 87th time, it seemed to me, at Maundy Thursday. And I thought, I'm out of of ideas. I, I don't know what else to say. And I read it. I I'd read. I had read an entire dissertation preparing for the, for this sermon, and then I thought I haven't read it aloud in a while. So I sat with it, read it, and what I began to detect in the room. And this this is surely a moment of grace. There was another sound apart from my voice, and it was the sound of my own heart beating. And it went with the cadence of the particular English translation that I had. And I had a whole new way then into the text on Peter's side. Wow, I've just, I've just had an experience of, of the Lord in the room with me. And that doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen very frequently. Still, it does have the power to read me, and I have to be open to that. But I also have to be open to the fact that other people with me um, hear it differently, and we need to be able to talk about that and not be um, antagonistic to one another. Look at Peter and Paul in Acts. 
essentially at each other's throats. We have been doing this for thousands of years. We're supposed to be doing this. It counts. It's, it matters. We don't fight about non-essentials. We fight, we fight about this stuff because it's so important to us, because it's at our core. That's why the Bible's so important. And that's our podcast for the day. Thanks so much for tuning in. And again, if you want to know more about us, you can pop over to churchnext.tv. And may the blessing of Almighty God be upon you and be with you this day and always. Amen.